What's going on, everybody? I share everybody to all my people out there. Welcome back to another episode of My Unapologetic Perspective. This is the podcast where we give our point of view of controversial topics from my experience, Black history, and our knowledge as African Americans. Uh, black history presently lives in us, so we can continue to excel into the future. It's one thing to know Black history. It's another thing to take advantage of what the people in Black history did for you. In the words of Malcolm X, there will come a time where the Black people will wake up and become intellectually independent enough to think for themselves, and we believe that we are in that era. I am your host, Martre Baker-Stevens, and to the right of me is Shaquan Battle. I me, mean, hello. And to the right of him is Jerome Battle. What's up? Um, we have a, uh, a guest today who really needs no introduction, but I'm going to try my best to give him a Madison Square Garden-type <laughs> introduction. Um <laughs> The we have no other than the man who originated the triplet flow, the man who mentored Jay Z, the man who has worked with artists such as The Locks, Mary J. Blige, The OJs, MOP, Diddy, Rakim, Cool G Rap, Queen Latifah, and Nipsey Hussle. We're talking about the originator, Jazz O. Welcome to the show, family. That's Absolutely. right, literally. Absolutely, man. We we are honored to have you here on this show. Um, I've been wanting to do an episode on hip hop for a while. And I was I told dad, I was like, we cannot do this episode without jazz. Like we need we need him here because you are important to the hip hop culture. Um, as a pioneer, as an artist, as an activist, all the things that you do, um, all the things that you have done is important. And we kind of saw that when you began to do the Instagram videos, like how big of an audience you actually have in, in, in New York. Like you have like a cult following. Like how does that feel like where you're at right now in your life? Like how does it feel when you're able to look back and see like how so many people rock with you out of respect for your music and who you are as a person? Actually, it makes me feel that I should be responsible for doing more. It, 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 it's, it's not really a burden, but it definitely entertains a responsibility. I feel like, um, you know, like, like just like your introduction, you know, sometimes <coughs> I feel like the introductions and the accolades are bigger than me. Because I don't look at myself that way. So oftentimes I feel like I have to continue to do things to um, maintain the honor that I've received over the years. So that's that's really the sum of it as far as how it makes me feel. But I'm also very proud. Um, I'm also very thankful, you know, to be somebody uh, even as a, a young child I always felt that I was you know I know it sounds cliche but I always felt that I was going to be somebody mm -hmm. I didn't know what but you know I was going to be somebody I was going to be either playing a guitar or talking in front of a bunch of people or playing the drums in somebody's band and then going on my own I, I felt something so uh, yeah, so, you know, I, again, I thank you, and I appreciate being on here, and um, 
that's that's how it makes me feel. Absolutely. Um, me personally on this podcast, I like to uh, I like to do a chronology of history. We always like to start from the beginning and then work our way through it um, because we like to see what was the cause and what was the effect and the changes that happened in between. Um, we know that hip hop started in New York. You know, you hear the stories of DJ Cool Herc. You hear about uh, Grandmaster Flash. You hear about um, African Bombada, all of those great legends. When was your first encounter or the first time that you heard this new hip hop culture and hip hop style? Um, actually, I was in 297 Park, which is uh, um, a public school or elementary school park across the street from Marcy and we were just shooting around and you know somebody had a radio out there and King Tim the third came on the radio and yeah so I was already I was already rhyming and stuff but you know I was new to it but at the same time when I heard that it was the realization that Oh, you can make records now? <laughs> oh, y'all doing records? I want to do a record. So, so that's where it was with me. And also, um, as far as high school is concerned, um, when I was accepted to uh, Fiorella H. LaGuardia High School of Music and the Arts, uh, when it was on um, Convent Avenue in Manhattan, and... Um, being kids from Brooklyn, we were we were exposed for the first time to um, you know the uptown style of MCing and DJing. You know, in Brooklyn, they you know we were going you know uptown, they was going you know he's like, what is that? So you know, and as far as MCing, you know we was on some Mikey and Ikey were playing in the ditch type of shit. And uptown, you know, we heard like routines, like this dude come in and then that dude come in. I'm like, oh, they doing like routines and they going, yes, yes, y'all, to the beat, y'all. That, that was like, your man, right? Grandmaster Kaz, right? Yeah, Kaz, um, the Nine, you know, like a whole bunch of um, Zulu Nation crews, you know, the Jazzy Five, Cosmic Force, um, you know, Soul Sonic Force, like the Zulu Nation, they were kind of like, um, you know, as far as the MCN and DJing, they were like the equivalent of Parliament Funkadelic. Right. You know, that's right. They had mad interchangeable parts. You know, it's like, yo, what, what's Globe doing over here? I thought he was down with Soul Sonic Force. And right. They was all over, over the here. place. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, but, that's when I was first really exposed. And when I heard, you know, when I heard cats like Grandmaster Kaz with Cold Crush and I heard um, Melly Mel, of course, these guys really um, brought it to my attention that you can excel in this thing. It became an actual craft with a particular skill set, And I was like, oh shit. It's like, that's where I wanna be. I want to be where Kaz is. When I heard Kaz, because Kaz didn't only, um, you know, and I'm sure he was like, he was the captain of the Cold Crush and 
he used to do all of the, um, he used to lead all the routines. And in the routines, you know, they did a lot of singing as well. And Kaz was the one who, out of everybody, you could tell that he could actually hold a note. Like if he was to sing a, like a song, like an R&B song, he can actually hold a note. And I was like, oh, he's singing and his cadence and the things that he said is just his whole style. I was like, marketing wise, like he'd be the perfect MC, you know, um, because he had, I mean, all of the other guys who were current um, that did start putting out records and stuff, he was way beyond them. I mean, I saw Huh? You just mentioned something. I'm going to cut in real quick that I, because I don't want to lose this part, is when we talk about hip hop being a culture and the art of hip hop, you just mentioned one of the biggest aspects of that is the term MC, master of ceremony, where today we hear people talk about rappers and, and rhymers and, and things of that nature. Can you just talk a little bit about what an MC is, what, what an MC was considered during that era? Right. Well, you know, MC, of course, uh, came from, you know, it's an acronym for Master of Ceremony. That's right. Um, and that's where the, the hip-hop MC came from. You know, it was the guy that, you know, the DJ wasn't talking. He was DJing. At one time, the DJ would do all the talking. That's right. But it kind of evolved into, like, y'all don't feel like talking. Here, take the mic and you talk to the crowd, get the crowd hyped and everything else. And it wasn't even about rhyming yet. And so it became, the master of ceremony became the MC. And then the MC started saying little jingles and stuff like that, and then started rhyming. And so the person who rhymes became the MC. That's right. Absolutely. Um, when it was your time to uh, I don't know if you started in the park or uh, you had an audience around. What your first time spitting your rhymes in front of a mass group of people? Take me through that. Um, the first time ever was really in Marcy Center. Uh, because outside of that, we were in each other's houses, you know, or apartments, you know, in the projects, and we were making tapes. Or we would just be practicing, you know, and, you know, Allen Iverson style. That's right. Practice. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and um, after a while, uh, people started hearing about me. And um, we started doing we started doing the center. Um, uh, my man, Stephen Crossland, may he rest in power. Um, he was my first DJ. Um, I can't even remember his name, his, uh, DJ name, but, uh, Duncan who lived right around Steve's way, he was also a DJ. And I think that's how Steve got started DJing. And after that, there was another, like, uh, I guess, uh force in the projects you know as far as the new age of mcs and djs and that was uh david gregory uh he was known as cool kg so we had all linked together and became like a little crew 
So KG had Paul with getting in, you know, Paul Robinson Center, you know, which is Marcy Center, and, you know, started DJing down there. And he wanted me to come down there. And, you know, we had the original high potent MCs. Um, it's just so much history. But then that was really the first time I emceed in front of a crowd. Now, the first time I actually emceed and more than one person heard it, um, my man, Ron Henley, who lived in, in 644 in, in the projects where I lived. And, um, you know, he had an uncle who lived in Red Hook projects named Mango. So we called him DJ, he was called DJ Mango. So on the weekends, uh, me, Ron, and Chris, uh, one, one of our boys, Chris, we used to always go to Red Hook and we hang out at Mango's house. And Mango obviously was a DJ. So if he wasn't DJing outside, he would be DJing in the house and, and stuff like that. So one night, uh, Man DJ Mango had a house party or I should say Uncle Mango, um, he had a house party and we went to the house party. And you know how the house parties are set up in, in apartments, the um, DJ setup is in the bedroom and you know, the doors oh, closed. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and the party atmosphere is in the living room. So um, he started DJing and um, you know, the crowd started getting hyped, you know, AKA getting drunk. And, <laughs> you know, cause I think somebody said something on the mic and the people got excited. It wasn't me though. And then I think it was Ron and then Ron passed me the mic. He's like, yo, you be emceeing in the center, right? I was like, yes, yeah, but I ain't never really emcee like, like this, like this. And he was like, come on, man. He's like, they can't even see you. I said, plus they all drunk. And, you know, if they don't like you, they don't know who you are anyway. And I was like, yeah, you're right. So he duped me in the <laughs> rhyming. So I had about I had about three or four rhymes at the time. And so I said all of them, they were going crazy. <laughs> they were going crazy. I was like, you know, and I was like, Let me write some more. He was like, let me write some more now. Yeah, that's right. My head, my head exploded. I couldn't get out the couldn't, couldn't get, get out, out the apartment by the end of the night. Yep. And um that motivated me to start writing more. I do, I, I do got a question. Um you had mentioned uh your DJ and in the Kings County freestyle, uh the drum freestyle, you said uh shout out to uh DJ Stevie Steve, and you started talking about the Marcy Center. Was that somewhere that, because we talk about on here all the time, you know, kids having somewhere to go to keep them out of trouble. Was that what Marcy Center was for you? Um, Nah, because I was in trouble anyway. Bedford became that place for you, right, to keep you out yeah. of trouble. <laughs> exactly. That's what Bedford was, you know. And, and, then, and then that only did half good, you know, but it, it did good enough. Yeah, did good enough. I was allowed to fortunately finish high school by moving to Bedford. Um, but the the center was more it it was uh, um it was recreation for us because 
it was a facility that we could do what we were doing all the time anyway, you know, because I mean, as, as a young teenager, all I was doing, I, I was actually going to school at the time, playing basketball. Um, I was smoking weed back then um, and emceeing. That, that was my life. You know, and the girls, you know, that goes without saying. <laughs> that, that comes with the territory. <laughs> you know, but um, but yeah, Marcy Center, it was more um, it was more like an escape for people who already had done some shit and they're like, yo, it's going to center, they ain't gonna find us in there. Right. <laughs> plus, plus it was plus it was territorial. So back in those days. Territory was huge, like different projects, different parts, different, uh, even different barrels. Everything was so territorial and you could do that right in your own territory, right in your own projects. But I I remember, I remember specifically um, being with you a lot of times and we would go places and it would take us forever to get there because everybody in New York knew who you were. (laughs) Everywhere we went, it took us hours. If it was 15 minutes away, it took us two hours to get there. <laughs> Every two minutes, somebody wanted to stop stop and talk to you. Um, and I, I even remember we would go other places because, again, everything was so territorial. But you had the green light to go anywhere. I remember going uptown and people like um, Heavy D would stop you. You didn't stop them. They would stop you. and like, yo, Jazz, what's up, man? And that's a 45-minute conversation. <laughs> I remember being at the park playing ball. Niggas would interrupt the game. <laughs> Yo, Jazz. Prime example, the first time you met Biggie, who was not Biggie at the time. He was just a dude in the area. The first time you met him, we was playing ball at the park. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'll be sure, for people that remember the I'll be sure guy, um, same thing. Meet him at the park. This nigga interrupt the basketball game. Yo, Jazz, I just heard your song on the radio. You know, yeah. as a there was some other things that you did in the music industry, as Bake talked about the triplet style starting that. But there's some other things that you did that was monumental in the industry that other people weren't doing. I know from personal experience, you're the first one to even do sampling at D and D Studio, which was a, a infamous studio during the time. Correct? Well, actually, it it was it was an unknown studio. And uh, what happened was they they were only doing like um, band stuff. Like if, uh, you know, they were doing rock sessions, reggae sessions. And what happened when I, when I got the deal with EMI, my management, they called out to some studios. And so uh, uh, Doug Grandma and, and Dave, Dave and Doug, of D&D, they called my management back and they were like, you guys asked for a turntable, a drum machine, and a MIDI keyboard. And they were like, we're just curious, like, what does he plan to do with that? That's how rare not only was sampling, period, in the industry, but how rare it was for a studio to book and to have those items rented in order for, you know, to do a session. And they were like, we don't know, but that's what he asked for. Get it. So get it for him. <laughs> we paying for it. Yeah. 
and that that's that's what it was with D and D. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, you recorded to Word to Jazz album in London. Yeah. So let me. I got a question. All right. Word to the Jazz. So I got a question. So here are you know hip hop is still in this baby form. You know, at that time, and here are y'all from Brooklyn in London. Like, what was the what was Europeans looking at y'all like? Like, or were they already hip to the new culture that was that was taking America by storm? Well, those those who actually were hip to things, they were in awe because we came from the U.S. and we lived for two months in you know and uh you know a, a prestigious neighborhood in london i can't even remember what the uh area was called in uh a two-story flat where we had both stories both floors and um like moni love talked about it and i didn't really right. i didn't really pay attention to it i was just like yo i got a deal this where we live in i gotta be in the studio in the morning that's that's how I looked at it. It didn't hit me till like all of it was over. But um, she talked about it. She was like, she didn't even know that that area in London existed. And um, we, we, the things that we did, like Wednesdays, there was a, um, a restaurant that we ate in. That Wednesday was the hot night. It was called the American Dream. And it was owned by uh, a woman from California. I don't know what part, and I don't even remember her name. But we were there every Wednesday, and I mean, we we had dinner. We sat at the table with like people that I never sat at the table with in the U.S. Like um, one night, it was uh, Anita Baker and George Duke. Uh, may, may he rest in power. Um, another night, it was Keith Sweat. Um, and there were other famous people that we didn't even know. And they were like, Hey, what's going on? And, you know, Anita Baker acting like everybody's mom, you know what I'm saying? Put that over there. And if he wants that, then, you know, you should put it over here. So he doesn't have to reach over. And, like, <laughs> and, and that was night. doing Anita Baker's prime. That was doing her oh, prime. Definitely in her prime. And she, you know, she wasn't over there picking, picking roses and nothing. That's she right. was over there working working you know so and and everybody passed through there like london as it is still i'm sure a major market you know for um entertainers as far as touring and everything and like the like the biggest acts that was um i mean even keep sweat like keep sweat that was when um you know i i wanna was on first out. that's right his first yeah. out that's right yeah and everybody in their prom and they they were looking at me like, what are you doing out here? <laughs> like, I'm trying to be like y'all. <laughs> you know, so, but. So with, with that said, I, I remember that, and I, I don't remember if they were signed to the same management company or they were signed to EMI Records. I don't know if it was the Red Hot Chili Peppers. It was one of those groups that was just yeah, new. We label mates. Yeah, we that's label right. Mates. And so I remember EMI going up to EMI Records with you several times and 
They really didn't know. They didn't know anything about rap. They didn't know anything about the culture, the music. Really and truly, they ain't know nothing about black people. I remember we used to go up to this. We used to go up there, and they would look at us like we were. Probably looked at us like we were thugs, but they didn't. They didn't even know how to speak to us. Yo, yo, what's up, man? <laughs> you know, they really didn't even know how to talk to us, let alone how to relate and and have a conversation and understand. Can you tell us a little bit how the industry, and it doesn't necessarily have to be racism, but how the industry view black artists, and and we can call it this now, black music, because that was at the time black music. Right, and that's what they called it. That's right. You know, they didn't call it, you know, now they they may say urban music or what have you, um, but they called it, they called it black music. Like when right. you went, like when we walked, that walk and then we turn right up at EMI and where where's the black music department all the way in the back. Right? All the way in the back. And so, right. I mean we're not talking yeah, we're not talking about mailroom people. We're talking about executives all the way in the back. All the way in the back. The VP of black music, the the um the, the assistant VP of black music all in the back. All the way in like the back. That. Um so yeah, I mean they looked at us like um definitely an oddity always as a potential money maker cash cow, yeah. That's because, right. because it was trending and it was something that everybody else was doing. Um Warner Warner Records had taken great advantage, you know, of course, by signing um or uh, um Assimilating, uh, um, cold chilling, and then Tom and Tom, and Tom right. exactly. So, um, so they were really taking advantage of the market, and so EMI, you know, I guess they wanted in, and they, I don't think they really knew how to go about it. Um, even for me, I think personally, which I mean, I'm not complaining, but they spent way too much money. You know, <laughs> well, they, they they didn't know what to do. Only thing they could do was throw money at it. And I remember, and I might be wrong, but one of your first tours was with um, Jody Watley, and and Jody Watley at the time she wasn't the R and B icon. She was like a popular music icon, where a lot of her audiences were white. Exactly. So I had like zero business being on tour with her, but. I was like, look, tour, exposure, you know. Um, and she also had, was it, was Rock Kim and them on that same tour because they had that song Friends? No. Let me tell you what happened. It's a crazy story. Um, they wanted, and, and that's what I, I had to really swallow my pride because they wanted Rock Kim on the tour. And I don't know exactly who it was. I don't know if it was Rakim or if it was Eric B or if it was their management at the time, but they declined, um, you know, because, and I think, I think it was because at that time, Rakim was just as big as Jody Watley. Right. You know, um, so for him to open up for her, you know, didn't make a whole lot of sense even though he had the song with her. Right. Um, 
UMCs was the other group on the tour, right? Was it UMCs, the ones that had that song Blue Cheese? No, that that was another tour. Okay. Um this this particular tour, it was all Jody Watley and I was just the opening act. Opening and act. they asked me, was I willing to do that? And I'm like, do I have to pay anybody any money? <laughs> you know, y'all y'all gonna give me everything I need. I ain't doing nothing else. <laughs> you know, it's it's not like today where, you know, you gotta, you know, you gotta put your music on all the DSPs and you know, you're basically self-managed and you outsource, you know, you're outsource of uh like companies that are already established and people you may have working for you. So I wasn't doing nothing else. I was doing the same shit. I was like, yo, let's go to the park, shoot some ball. Yeah. Um, you know, so I was like, yeah, let's let's do it. But did, did you ever feel like at some point they was trying to market what they consider black music to like more of a white audience? Yeah. yeah. That, at least that was EMI's attempt anyway. Yeah, that was EMI's attempt because they didn't know anything else to do. That's they right. didn't know they didn't know what else to do. And um, I was on that tour for like five weeks and it was very enjoyable you know, um, made some money, ate good, lived good, met a lot of people. It was was wonderful. Yeah. And and that's one of, that was actually my next question. Cause when you listen to word to the jazz and then transition into the, to your soul album was the word to the jazz album more of what they wanted you to do and the to your soul album was more of what you wanted to do because i mean you got songs on the to your like divided as a as a nation black man in charge i mean was that more of a buck the system type of album or that's just oh, yeah, the yeah, way it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they definitely ain't want none of that um <laughs> that, that was the end that was the end of that because after that was the ep and then it was like yeah nice knowing you. yeah yeah so um yeah, so I think it also represented a certain era. And when I recorded Word to the Jazz, it was in line with stuff like Hawaiian Sophie and things of that nature. It was, yeah, it was, it, yeah, a lot of stuff on there is commercial. And I felt like that's sort of what I had to do to get to the next level so and also during my stay in london like all i was playing was fear of a black planet that's right public Public enemy enemy. all the time that's right and then and and it was so ironic to go in the studio talk about give a little extra you know yeah (laughs) from that and then you know put on my my headphones you know Fear of a black planet. Listening to Chuck being them. That public enemy, that right there, that that probably inspired you in multiple ways, not just from the philosophy aspect, but also from the production aspect. You and I used to talk about this all the time. The hit squad, them niggas used to put together some music, man. Mm -hmm. The bomb squad, they used to put together some music. So from production aspect, that that inspired you a little bit because I remember... um, yeah, I remember when you finally got your own equipment in the in the crib, 
You didn't want to play ball no more. You didn't want to do anything. All you wanted to do <laughs> was put together some music, man. Yep. And I used to, I used to follow them crazy, like you know Eric Sadler, um, Hank and Keith Shockley. Shockley. Yeah, I I followed them. I followed them like to the point where if I recognized like a um a horn riff that they use in a particular song, like, like say for instance, um, uh, Night of the Living, Night of the Night Living Bass Yeah, Night of the Living Bass has, and they had that, um, that, that, that's crazy, <laughs> crazy high horn, um, and, and all the different little horn sections. I used to look, I was like, yo, is that James Brown? Is it the JBs? Is it, you know, Lynn Collins? They used to know, hide. Because I knew it had that sound. And I would find those records and I make my own beats from those same riffs and, you know, my own drums and stuff like that. Yeah. So I they, they're one of my favorite all-time producing or production teams. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so during that era too, we all go through transitions. I mean, you watch this podcast. If you go back and you watch like bacon his early segments of motivational speaking, everybody go through their transitions where they may talk about things that they've learned or that they've tried to incorporate in their life at that time. Yeah. And then you see a transition because they learn from that. Then they move on. You went through a transition when you went to, when you did the to your soul album, where you were more of Ansar the law, so to speak, um, yeah. which is Ansar Islam. Um, and then you transition from that to, and I'll let you go with, with where you transition from that into whatever school of thought and thought process you were following at that time. Yeah. So, um, so the second album, I was really after I got home from London from recording the first album, I became open to, um, and it was leaning more toward um, the spiritual aspect of religion, if you will. So uh, Islam seemed as, seemed closer than, you know, me being able to relate to somebody, you know, like um, anywhere else, like, you know, far Eastern schools of thought, you know, Islam was right there in your face. And it was something that uh, a young lady named June, while I was in London, she took me to uh, a masjid, a massive masjid in London. I think it's either the biggest in the world or one of the biggest in the world. And I started reading books, but it didn't really hit me because it was telling me how to do spiritual things. And my understanding, even back then, was you do spiritual things according to the spirit, meaning your spirit, not a spirit, a spirit's interpretation or spiritual interpretation out of a book. So um, when I came back to the States, um, we were playing ball in 318 gym and they were being uh, run, the, the after school uh, gym was being run by um, the Sunni Muslims who had the uh, masjid on um, 
on Fulton and Nostra. And I don't know if you you remember, I remember. that. Room. Yes, sir. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, so I used to hear them, and I don't know if they were doing it on purpose or not, but they were talking about this group of individuals who were so jammed up. And it's like jammed up. And one day I asked them, I was like, yo, what do you mean by jammed up? He's like, yeah, they just caught up and ignorant and setting their own ways and all of this other stuff. And I was like, hmm, little did they know they aroused my curiosity about <laughs> the ansaws because that's who they were talking about. They were talking about the ansaws, right? Yeah. And now talking about how they jammed up and everything. So that that interest, that that rose interest in me. Um and then what happened was I just kept running into ansars here and there. Um, I don't want to I don't want to extend this story because there's so many legs to this and so right. many arms to it. But I'll just I'll just stick to the plan. So from ansar to law, um, I just constantly listened to things. You know, I saw the um, I saw that. In all books, there's truth. You know, the issue is in interpretation, right. uh, intent of the interpreter, and so on and so forth. So I figured if I'm going to use an interpretation, let me use my own, because I know my intention, you know. And from as long as I can remember, when I did start searching, my search or my intention was you know, everybody talking about this dude supposed to be so popular. His name is God. I want to meet him. I'm dead serious. You right. know, I, I want to meet him. Where is he? You know, you're telling me you can't see him. This, this, this. That doesn't add up to anything else that is logical. So, so I figured that the best way for me to do that is to start reading. And when I read, I realized that, man, this book is saying a lot of the same things that this book is saying. It's just that the interpretation because of a particular person's orientation due to their religion. That's right. Um, forces them to say this, you know, yeah. forces them, you know, even to the simplest thing like, you know, this is God over here or Yahweh or Jehovah over there. And so the law over here and, you know, but y'all talking about, that's just a simple example. Y'all talking about the same yeah. thing. Same entity, right. That's right. Uh, right. Whether, whether, whether um, you want to interpret it as a physical being, a spiritual being, um, I'm a spiritual being, but I'm physical. So that's then right. what, you know, so then it comes down to the interpretation and the realization of who you are, because that's all that really counts. Everything else is just a catalyst for you to measure who and what you are. That's right. Absolutely. Um, real quick. So that that that's where I went to from <laughs> from Mansard Law. Yeah. Uh, just got a notification on my phone. Uh, rest in peace to Bill Russell, who uh, dies at the man. age of eighty-eight. Um, oh man. I, I'm saying, oh man, but I, I'm not really sad because he lived a a good long life. Yeah, I, I I I tell people all the time. For me, when people talk about one of the best, he's never mentioned as a goat. 
Never. You never talk about Bill Russell, but nobody won as many championships as he did. Right. He's the only one. People talk about Will Chamberlain. He's the reason Will Chamberlain didn't win a lot of championships (laughs) because of Bill Russell. But nobody talks about Bill Russell. You know, know, Bill Russell. They will now. Exactly. They will now. Yeah. You know, bandwagoners. Yeah. Um, now he's dead. Now he's the greatest. Now. Yeah. Exactly. Give him his flowers if you want to call it that. While That's right. He's here. Yeah. And um, it's crazy. Like, I guess he wasn't flashy enough. You know. Yeah. And 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 they rarely speak about his many exploits as far as, um, you know, supporting his race. In Boston. And one of the most racist. Oh my uh, goodness! <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Exactly. And that, Absolutely. That, that's what you call standing up. Yep. That's what you call standing up. So, um, yeah, we spend we 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 send a, a special ashe. Yeah, absolutely. Out to Bill Russell. That's right. You know what I'm saying? It, it's it's all love and it's all peace, and may he continue to find the greatest thing and become more of himself in his endless journey. That's right. I say, I say, brother. Um, I want to, want to transition real quick, uh, jazz, because on this podcast, dad talks a lot about how smart and intelligent your mom is. Um, and you know, we've talked about different people on this podcast, people like, uh, Marcus Garvey, Malcolm X, um, Noble Drew Ali, all of those great people. Who was somebody that you read about or you listened to that gave you knowledge, hope, and direction? Because even in rappers, we we know the rappers that read. We know the rappers that that are intelligent because you can hear it in their lyrics. You're one of those people. So who was somebody that you were influenced by? Um, I guess it's a myriad of, of many individuals i mean from the honorable elijah muhammad who um somebody recently spoke about doesn't get no i actually saw a post on ig and somebody thankfully somebody mentioned how little credit he had he has been given you know of course he you know he hasn't been given credit and they actually made and this is no stab at Farrakhan, but they made Louis Farrakhan bigger than the honorable Elijah Muhammad. And that's totally ludicrous. Yeah. But, but, but that, but that was the, but that's by design. I mean, Elijah, the, the honorable Elijah Muhammad, that's what he always wanted. He, he never wanted to be the focus. He always wanted to be about the message. Yeah. The people got, I think got publicized more than the message, even with Malcolm X. But that was the whole plan, is he wanted it to go beyond him, the physical. Right. Yeah. Now, I don't know how you get it beyond Malcolm X and Farrakhan, the physical, <laughs> because now that's all you ever hear about. You don't even hear about Elijah Muhammad. Yeah. Nope. Because, uh, for one, uh, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, he quoted many things that was told to him you know, by uh, Master Farad Muhammad. And one of those things he talked about, and I speak of it, you know, periodically to certain people 
because they'll bring it up because it's something noticeable. Like, and I'll, I'll even pitch it to y'all. Y'all notice like in the summer, like you don't really see bees anymore. Yeah. Master Farad Muhammad. Yeah, I remember reading Communicating that. to honor, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. Yeah, I remember reading that back in the 90s. Mm -hmm. you know, which is which is which is crazy because you know it's about thirty years ago. Exactly. Yeah. And then yeah, and then you look at you look at when he told him that. That's right. Even further. Even further back. <laughs> yeah. Sixties exactly. and seventies, maybe. Yeah. 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 So we we also talked about we had a whole episode and we we we've done this over and over again um, about you know housing segregation. Um, most people, when they think about segregation, they just think about Jim Crow South, right? But you being from New York, we understand that the redlining and housing seg segregation with housing projects, what that did to bigger cities. Um, you growing up in Marcy projects, did you ever feel like y'all was segregated from the white America and the rest of New York? Um, fortunately, we didn't. Well, I didn't. Mm -hmm. uh, I grew up in a household, you know, that was full of love. Um, you know, we had our difficulties. But um, up until I was like, I guess, 10, maybe 11, 10 or 11, you know, um, I was in a two parent household and financially for what we had to do financially we we were we were safe and secure and you know we we weren't ignorant to people who had more than yeah. what we had but uh we had everything we we needed and a lot of the things that we wanted so i i didn't really i i have to thank my mother and father for shielding us, if you will, from the many ugly aspects of um, social thinking, and social programming and, and such. What was the biggest culture shock coming from New York down to good old Bedford? It wasn't really a shock because we were coming down there every summer since as long as I can remember. You know, long as I can remember, we, you know, uh, what was it, 725 Longwood Avenue? Yeah. Yeah, I, I was telling them, they were asking me what was my first experience with hip-hop, and I couldn't really say, I, I knew the first hip-hop song I heard on the radio, and that was the King Tim Third song you just mentioned. It wasn't Rapper's Delight. It was the King Tim Third song. Once you reach the top, you won't be alone. You got King Tim on the microphone. I remember that. But I I also remember when you used to come down in the summers. So this this is like, I'm trying to think, I'm thinking maybe like 84, maybe. You, I, I found out two things. And one of them is going to be something a lot of people don't know, but I'm going to say it. You and I talked about it before. Is you used to draw. You as an artist, not just writing, not just music. Because we a lot of people think of jazz as being a rapper. I don't. Mm -hmm. I, I think of jazz as an artist first my cousin so that's fucked up that's the first part <laughs> but as an artist because you not only drew 
in in rap, but you sing, which a lot of people may not know that. But I used to see some of your drawings, like I'm talking like 83, 84. And this was B-boy style. This is when the B-boy style was popular in New York, which is kind of, I don't know if that was pre-hip-hop or were the two like merged together. But I remember some of your drawings were B-boy style drawings that a lot of people didn't even know you could draw, let alone seen in your drawings. But I did. And I stole some of that shit with some of my drawings <laughs> when I was younger. But for the culture, what do you think or what do you believe is the culture of hip hop? Um, I guess I'll paraphrase uh, Grandmaster Kaz because they asked him a question about the beginnings and what he what he elaborated on was the fact that many of these things we were already doing as a culture you know when the um the reason why they started manufacturing thick you know the thick laces to go on the sneakers is because we were doubling up the laces we were putting like two laces you know per shoe in the sneaker so so that it would look thicker and we would you know diversify the colors and all that other stuff and that's what caused them to manufacture it as far as the the wave cap, we were cutting up the um the BVD nylon shirts. You know, like one of the things I think it started in the um in the um the prison system, um and then tie, you know, put a hole in the ends and tie um tie a shoelace on one end on both ends and wrap it around and so on and so forth. And now you can get one already done. That's at right. your local beauty. Yeah. <laughs> most creative people in the world. We talk about in this podcast all the time. Yep. We are the most creative people in the world. Exactly. So um, so when you talk about hip hop, you're talking about um Isaac Hayes did a song called The Rap. And he was right. rapping. Um, there was a popular DJ in the early 70s um when we actually listened to AM radio. Um, he was on WWRL in New York, and his name was Frankie Crocker. And at the end of his show every day, he did this thing called The Rap. Rap. Um, so to paraphrase Kaz, we were already doing these things. Of course, you know, we were doing graffiti. That's of right. course, um, we were doing dance. dance battles that they turned into freestyles and stuff like that. So all of these things were already happening. It's just that when the marketing aspect came in, you know, when, you know, I guess uh, people with money, they said, oh, you know, look at these people, you know, <laughs> look at what they can do. You know, this is another thing. This is another form of expression that we can capitalize on. And I mean, and I'm not saying it maliciously. I'm saying it. that's how it is. That's what it is. And so um, um, people in the Bronx, of course, they called it B-Boy because that's what they saw it as. And it was a culmination of all the things that they did, you know, doubling up with the laces. And then they started manufacturing thick laces, um, you know, the, the, 
the wave cap or the stocking cap, you know, uh, to protect your dew. Um, right. The tight, you the know, tight the, crease in the pants, right? Exactly. Then start sewing the crease in and stuff That's right. like that. Um, all of those things, the the um, the acrylic joints, you know, we could go into the whole thing with Nike and the Shirt Kings. That's right. You know, they, they used to do it on the um, on the bell bottom uh, dun lead dungarees, you know, because you had a lot of space for artwork. That's right. <laughs> had a, lot of, had a, a whole lot of real estate to draw on, right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So um, all of these things were already going on and somebody just marketed the whole fact that when you do all these things, you're, you're a B-boy. And then it came to hip hop because as you well know, um, scratching used to be cutting. Right. Rhyming and rapping used to be emceeing. That's right. So how do you feel, how do you feel that corporate America, and, and I'm gonna use that word uh, synonymously with white America, but corporate America took, I, 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 I hate to say took to take advantage because I think that's what they did. Um, when we hear stories of all black artists, and I don't care, we can even talk about TLC and R&B. Mm -hmm. we, we can talk about them and we can even talk about the fact that you've mentioned this before, some of the worst people towards black people were other black people. We, we talked about that before, but this industry took those concepts and made billions of dollars. Not only made it billions of dollars, they made it a billion dollar industry every year since then. And we don't get our fair cut from it, whether we're the artists, the producers, or the originators of it. How do you feel about that? Um, I feel like... <laughs> <laughs> no, I, but, but yeah, I... You you hate to you hate to say things like this, but on initially you look at it as there's not much I can do about it. And the only reason I say that is because you can't make people do or express your feelings. You only all you can do is find like-minded people. And usually what they do. There's so few like-minded people as far as moving away from the standard workings of things that it's, they're too easy to crush. Right. And, and so we, it goes deeper. It goes into a system of finances where in order to secure the finances to do these mega deals and stuff like that, you would have to know how to secure these finances. And we don't because we haven't been taught that. <coughs> if I told people that they have a card when they're born, they're born with a card that's represented by a bond that's worth $500 million, they look at me like I'm crazy. Right. But, you know, we're not going to elaborate on that, but that's just an example of some of the things that um, keep us from taking advantage of our own abilities. But do, do, you, do you think sometimes that, like for, for you, for I'm gonna use you a prime example. 
when you have talent, when you have, well, we call it talent, but when you're the person, sometimes you just look at it as I have the ability to do certain things, right? I have the ability to write a rhyme and then rap on a beat on time and the shit sounds good. Yeah. I have that ability. And we don't look at it as, as marketable. We don't look at it as profitable. We look at it as this is what I do. This is what I do. Why do I, why, first of all, how do I go about selling it? Like you just talked about, Bake talked about on this podcast many times before. I don't know anything about that. But what I do know is I can wrap my ass off and that's what I'm going to do because I'm good at it. And we're so talented that you can take that. You can, you can take my rhymes and you can spit them yourself. It's all good. I'll write another one. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And we fall into that. We fall into that loop of saying it's talent, but it's what I do. If I don't make money from it, ain't a big deal. I've actually heard you and a couple of rappers like OC say, I rather have respect from people in my communities that know what I did in this industry than have billions of dollars. Now I'm not saying any, I know with you, that's not, that's not just the saying you really mean that shit, but you probably would love to have billions too. I would love that, yeah, billions, but not at the cost that most pay to attain it. Because yeah. it comes with a cost. That's the key. Yeah, it's not. It's, it's rarely. There's rarely the best of both worlds, if you if you will. There's an either or, and um, my journey is really to capture both. Um, it's the story of um. Uh, was uh, Solomon and his two sons and he's like you know two paths you could take you know you give you the riches you know the wealth or the wisdom and of course naturally everybody's going to take the wealth but the wisdom of it all is to attain the wisdom you will also attain the wealth because attaining the um you know what, what's that saying uh, um <clears throat> a fool in his money yeah yeah, I, I can't remember, but it's basically saying that, you know, you can have all the money in the world. If you're a fucking fool, you know, we'll get you're gonna, it. That's you're right. lose. You don't That's know right. what to do with it and so on and so forth. But if you have the wisdom, that means that you also have the wisdom to attain these things and having the, the wisdom to attain them. You not only appreciate it, but, you know, the science of maintaining it. So, um. So I, I, you know, I, ch- I chose this long road and it may not be, uh, you know, through music or anything else, but, you know, I choose wisdom all the time. Absolutely. Um, we've, we've seen hip hop go through different eras, right? And one of the downfalls to hip hop is of course is the rap beefs, especially after Biggie and Pac, right? And now and nowadays we're starting to see it's almost every day you turn on the TV or you get on the internet, a new rapper has been killed. Probably by another rapper or another rapper's crew, right? Mm-hmm. What what is your advice to these artists coming up that are talking about the streets, but they're in the streets too? And that's been more the focus other than the business side of getting out of the hood and getting out of the, the, the environment that you're in to make the money that you want to make so you can live the best life possible for you and your family. Like what's your advice to these up and coming rappers? Um, <clears throat> first off, it, 
it makes me feel awkward to even speak on them or to them because in all reality, they're not artists, first and foremost. They're not even artists. They're people who are absorbed with what we presented on screen, what we presented on record, and they want to be that, you know, they want to, um, they want to perpetrate that. So um, now, like I had a conversation with, with a cat in Guitar Center and he was like, yo, somebody was telling me if, um, if you have 50 grand, you could be a famous rap artist. It's like, yeah, you can, if you know where to put the money and that's what it's about. So um, for those artists who are really artists and not speaking to them only as artists, but as human beings, you have to learn to be more low profile, mm -hmm. you know, you, and, and it's all in how you move. And I, I'm going to keep it a buck, you know, and I'm not I'm not getting on these these cats because they're young, but because they're young, they 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 brag a lot, but they brag to the point where. You know, they get on that, you know, fuck the other side shit. And that's like the. That's like the number one thing for beef. Like if you like if you were going to start selling a beef kit, all you got to do is put that shit in there. That's, that's the right. full fledged beef kit. He's like, oh, nigga said, fuck the other side. Fuck this nigga <laughs> saying, yo, let's get this nigga. That's the first thing. Like, no, nobody want to hear that. Like, the, and, and they don't have the wherewithal and they don't have that, this in here to say like, yo, I made it. I don't care if this nigga's on the other side, if whatever the other side is supposed to be. Um, yo, if, you know, if this nigga come right, you know what I'm saying? We could do some business together. I don't, I don't have a problem with this person or that person, you know, Lon Zang, I no problem with me. And, but then that's not the thinking due to social programming and social media shit and, um, them, uh, reporting every time a rap artist gets murdered. Like, look how many other people get murdered. Look how some, a fucking Hasidic Jew gets murdered. It doesn't even go on the papers. It doesn't go on social media. Um, a Hindu gets murdered. It doesn't go on. So, but a rapper, a rapper is not even an ethnicity. But just right. that code name right. rapper, it insinuates that it's it, that it's is some young black thug. You know what I'm that's saying? Right. That's starting trouble and talking a whole lot of shit, wearing too much jewelry and went and um, riding in cars that they can't really afford. That's the whole picture that's given, and so it's easy to dis discard the sympathy for anybody because oh, it's just another one of those rappers, you know. Because they, you know, they they demonize you, and um, and and it's messed up. My advice would be, if you're a real artist, you know, then carry yourself as such. Mm -hmm. You don't have to fall into the fold of, you know, I'm super thuggish. You know, I got work in my car. You know what I'm saying? I'm moving bricks, so I'm moving this. I'm selling this, and I'm doing that. Like, don't nobody like. The only people who give a fuck, they not buying your shit. Right, right. They're not putting a dime in your pocket. They may have a subscription to Spotify or Amazon Music, but they ain't supporting your shit at all because they're a bunch of broke motherfuckers 
who are in the same bullshit. And I hate to categorize, <laughs> but it's the, truth. it's the it's the truth, man. And you know, like like I you know I'll be telling people like it'd be people you know like like young girls and stuff you know they do all they all that nails and they fucking eyelashes, eyelashes. this big. Looking like a tranny and shit, you know what I'm saying? And it's like, unless you're in, a, in an environment where somebody is giving you positive attention and is drawn and attracted to that and is willing to do some type of commerce, some type of business with you, you're wasting your money yeah. because you're impressing people who are just going to get angry at the fact that you have it and they don't. Yeah, that's, that's funny. I was reading um, I was reading an article um, by RuPaul the other day, and RuPaul was saying every time he dressed in drag, that's a million dollars. See? Every time he dressed in drag, that's a million dollars. And you know our feelings on the shit, but you can't knock it. You yeah. can't knock it. You, you can't, can't knock you it. Know, you you just said that everything, everything comes with a cost. Yeah. He's willing mm -hmm. to pay that cost to get that return investment of a million dollars every time he put that dress on. Right now, I'm not putting the dress on. You give me a million dollars, I put that dress on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and a lot, and, and it's some of these rap dudes who put shit on and nobody giving them nothing. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, a lot of rappers went to wearing skinny jeans to, to get that million dollars, right? <laughs> yeah. And what's what's homeboy that put on a dress and you know another oh, young one, young you know, dog, yeah, one kissing niggas in the lips yeah. and all that shit <laughs> for for a check. But as 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 you alluded that, to many many times, that's that's been part of the industry since the beginning of time, right? That's right, exactly. And, and the flip side is that it's not hard for them because they handpick motherfuckers. That's what they want to do anyway. Yeah. yeah. So it's like we'll pay you to perpetrate this shit to the world because they're not looking at it as it's just you doing it. No, you're a young black rap artist. You are ultra extra uber popular and you kissing on another nigga. Yeah. That, that's, that's the perception. You know what I'm saying? And of course, um, with today's society um, and them being flip-flop totally by social media, you know, it's not the strangest thing in the world, but it's accepted. It's super strange. It's accepted. It's it, a lot of it is accepted. But when that happens, especially when you look at it from the rap industry, but as we talked about before, from black music perspective, mm -hmm. do you think that waters down the history of the culture? Um, it in the sense that history is written by the conquerors. So if that's the popular view and that's all people see and they don't dig any deeper, then it does water down the culture. If they look and see what the culture truly is and that it is a plethora of different lifestyles, a plethora of different um, schools of thought that culminate to become this thing called the hip hop culture, which is really not even a hip hop culture, it's our culture. Right. But um, then 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 your view, of course, is different. And I choose to look at it as, OK, you got these people over here and then you got what people do. That's why I, every time like I always urge um, 
my associates or, or my colleagues in, in this so-called rap game to continue doing what they're doing. And I don't mean continue doing what they're doing, like, oh, let me make my shit sound more like what um, what they're doing now, like, you know, what they call mumble rap and, you know, your, you know, your voice is this high, but when you get, you know, but all your music, you sound like, oh, no, 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 you know, you know, with the um, auto tune and all that. And I'm not knocking any of that shit, but what I'm saying is, to me, that's that over here. I don't do that. Yeah. And I don't have to come. If somebody's going to do that on a song with me, that's their prerogative. I'm not doing it. You know, and then I got to sit down and think, do I want that shit on my song? Because even if it's with somebody else's album, if I'm on it, it's my song. It's your song. Exactly. So um, I do this over here on the other side. You know, if you want to call it a, another side, but I do this over here different from that. I don't want to, I, I feel like I come across the people based on my tonation because that tonation dictates what's in my heart. You know what I'm saying? It's not really all of what you say, like the wordplay and stuff like that, which is important, but just as important is you um, convincingly conveying your your thoughts how you say it your tonation you know right. you could you know and express expressing yourself and you know I, I i told you before i don't view you as an mc or a rapper or any of that i view you as an artist you remember in purple rain what the the club owner told prince tired of hearing you play that shit nobody want to hear that shit but you i was an artist <laughs> see an artist don't care what you want to hear a, a artist is going to be true to themselves and do what they want to do. Either you like it or you don't. Yeah. You know. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure somebody really told Prince that too. And look, he's one of the biggest, most impactful artists in music history. That's right. And I mean, and when I say when I say that, I don't say like one of many. I mean, he's in the top five easy. That's right. Probably the top three. Yeah, that's right. Jazz, you worked with a lot of different artists and, you know, a lot of people just like to talk about the Jay-Z situation, but I, I want to talk about something different because you talk, you said the word artist, and I believe that's huge because an artist takes their craft seriously. And what we witnessed a few months back with on the versus stage between the locks and the dip set, you produced the locks demo tape. Did you see their level of MC and then did you think that they would be where they are now as considered one of the best rap groups ever and possibly the most unified rap group ever to where they kept their brotherhood with no beefs and all that other stuff? Did you see that back then? Yeah. Yeah. I I don't like I don't really take much interest in in too many acts in that aspect. You know, I've worked with a lot of people, but I didn't uh consistently you know collaborate and when i say collaborate it doesn't mean that i either produced or co-produced or featured on like a whole gang of songs or anything like that but along their career like i was always around in the midst in uh whether it be and and a lot of it was personal you know <coughs> you know um going up to to um, 
going up north from from New York, um, um, going to the studios, um, seeing these cats out of town, seeing them at parties, um, sitting down talking to them, showing up at video <coughs> shoots. You know, these things to me are important, and uh, I knew that they were. Um, I knew they were going to be like that because. <coughs> Excuse me, because I knew I knew uh, who they had had come from. You know, um, they were with a solid clique. You know, with two solid gentlemen I've known for a long time and respect. You know, D and Y Rough Riders, and um, yeah. So it, yeah, it was it was a it was a no brainer, and even the stuff that they went through. You know, as far as Bad Boy and everything. They kept it together. Yeah. And 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 me personally, I feel like Bad Boy, you know, I feel like, you know, Puff was was kind of like trying to find the one that he was gonna, you know, groom personally, you know, because he would have them do stuff separately at times, you know, which I me personally, I wasn't really crazy about. Right. You know, but in any that's another story. What what artists do you wish you had a chance to work with or that you want to work with? If it's if it's anything besides the uh the money, like I don't have like a um if I would say one, I would have to say if Donnie Hathaway <laughs> was alive. I, I was just getting ready to say that. You have a you have a broad knowledge of music, and and I don't know if anybody really caught this, but when you were talking about listening to the Bomb Squad, how you would try to decipher the music that they had hidden in the background, and you would dig in the crate, so to speak, literally, because there was no internet. You literally had to go find records and dig in the crate, put it on the turntable, and try to find different parts. I watched you do that, but your knowledge of different genres of music I think is astounding so I know for me personally some of your favorite artists when it comes to music are people like Chucky Booker um you just mentioned Donny Hathaway who is your all-time favorite artist and it doesn't matter what genre of music it is and you can't say jazz because <laughs> I, I know I know you'll say me but don't don't say jazz <laughs> Yeah, I have to say, um, man, it's there's so many. I mean, you y'all y'all know there's so many great great artists that I mean, some that received their flowers after the fact, some that you know were were mega stars, but I would have to say I would have to say Donny Hathaway. He he's my all time favorite. Like he's like. You know how like when um when somebody's talking and you get them, you understand yeah. like where they're coming from. You know, like one of my favorites is also like the um the uh collaboration album he did with uh Roberta Flack. Right. And I mean some of the songs on there, man, is just like the way they went back and forth and 
you know, I'm gonna keep it a buck. You know, Roberta Flack, she's a good singer. She's not great right. as a singer to me by far. And I'm not saying she's a bad singer, but she's a she's a terrific artist. Um, you know, soulful at times, but like Ed Donnie Hathaway is is serious business. On that collaboration, he make her sound like a great vocalist, right? Yeah. yeah. So I, I know Baker, I know I know Baker get ready to go into this this next question, but before he asks that question, I, I wanna I wanna say a couple things to you because I think this impacts it 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 makes me who I am in terms of answering this next question that he's gonna ask you is that you were a mentor to me from early age. I was probably 12, 13. And when, 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 even before you knew or probably knew you were mentoring me, you were mentoring me on this podcast. I talk about my dad being my hero. So a lot of people looked outside of their household for heroes. I looked inside my household, my hero, my first hero was my dad. My second hero was Alvin, my oldest brother. But when it comes to mentors to this day, until these two became adults, you were my mentor. I, I looked at them there. They mentored me. Mm-hmm. But you have always been my mentor, even up to this day. We had a conversation yesterday where you continue to mentor me. Um, even down to even down to the way I lace my shoes. <laughs> I taught them, they lace their shoes the same way. You know? Uh it is it's even the way we express ourselves. Like I said, I, I draw, but I I learned to diversify my my style by watching your drawings, even though little people even knew that you drew. Mm-hmm. And those are the type of things that kind of culminate into my answer to this next question that he's going to ask you. Um, because all of those things make me proud of who I am. Um, and a lot of that is directly associated with you. I, I still remember one of the main things that you told me. There was two things. One, you you told me when we go out in public and we see a celebrity, don't be acting all crazy. Man. <laughs> don't don't be don't be running up into them like you know like you never seen a celebrity before. That was hard, man. I'm gonna tell you you you, you put a burden on me that was that was very difficult. So, <laughs> but but the other thing is is that. You you also taught me that you can admire somebody's work, but you don't know that person. You hear people all the time say, "Oh man, we love Michael Jackson." Oh, we because I fell into the same category where I talked about I love Bill Cosby, but I, I didn't I didn't specify that I love Bill Cosby the entertainer, not Bill Cosby the person because yeah. I don't fucking know him, yeah. right? Obviously. <laughs> But those are the two things you always tell me. So, yo, you, 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 people admire these artists, but they don't know these artists, man. They don't know what they do, you know? So you can admire their work. You can admire them as an entertainer or a rapper or whatever, but you don't love them. You don't know them. Yeah. Those are two things that I still hold you today in terms of how I view people. And even on this podcast, I always talk about Bill Cosby because there was a lot of things that he said that black people should heed to because if you incorporate that into your way of thinking, you become a better person. So somebody asked me before, when was the first time I actually saw you perform on stage as, 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 as jazz, the artist, not, not 
as you known in in Bedford, Bump City. Uh, <laughs> you know, so I I of course, of course heard you um, perform at what they call the club back in the day. Me and Eugene snuck down there one Saturday night and got to hear you hear you rap um, Johnny Bumpus Bump City. And uh, but I remember what the first time I actually saw you perform was not a rap song. I, no. and and I I don't I don't want to expose you but this is my unapologetic perspective right <laughs> we were at um we were at Salt and Pepper Pepper had a birthday party oh, and <laughs> yeah yeah I'm going there so we we went, we go to the party I think the shit was at like Kilimanjaro or something back in the day but we went to this party and um they called you on stage and you sang happy birthday to Pepper on her birthday I remember that shit. And that was the first time. And I even then, I remember Jay leaning over and Jay leaned over to me and Chase and was like, ain't no this nigga can sing. <laughs> <laughs> that shit was for me, that's like one of the experiences that I will always remember because it was the first time anybody really heard you sing. You know, so even Jay was like, even Jay was like, I didn't know this nigga could sing. Right, and I remember him teasing you all the way back to the all the way back, all the way back to Brooklyn about that shit. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This nigga sung Stevie Wonder Happy Birthday and shit. <laughs> but they, but see, she knew because she was, you know, she was around us, um, a lot. Like we used to go to this studio in Coney Island. And we used to do a lot of stuff out of there too. Um, right. But let me tell you a quick funny story about that. Like we took a picture. I think it was, um, it's this young girl, but she's she's um, Sandy's uh, aunt. So she's in the picture. I think the picture's on, it's, it's on the internet. The, qu the question I had to ask you, um... Because again, this is my unapologetic perspective. Um, we talked about hip hop culture. We talked about you know the history in, in hip hop, and but it, that's why it was important to have you on here because definitely in the south, there's a different type of mindset than it is than people who come from places like New York City or D.C. Um, to where a lot of people don't understand what black pride is right because you're around a multitude of group of people who try to especially in the south they make black pride kind of feel bad you know what i mean like what does black pride mean to you um to me it is a culture within itself the way you dress um even more so because you know today's dress is so diversified it's very much about the way you act your your um you know the way you speak in public i mean because because obviously even though we're amongst ourselves other people are listening to us so in essence we're not going to talk the same way we talk like if we you know, we end up in Ruby Tuesdays or something. That's right. You know what I'm saying? We got to right. totally different. And I think that Black Pride is recognizing 
and um, actually conveying or purveying or, or conveying that difference. Like, you know, knowing the difference between like, oh, it's, it's all of us, but then there's one of these things does not belong here, you know, or that's not usually here. Somebody who is maybe not family and they're not really around us. They don't know two of us too well. You know, that type of shit, you don't, it's still not, oh, well, it's just us. It's not just us anymore. And to right. me, Black Pride is knowing the difference between that, you know, knowing how to conduct yourself in different situations because we're looked upon, you know, of, of course, we're looked at under a microscope yeah. and, you know, every little thing. That's so right. we, we have to be, and on the flip side of that, we are the pinnacle of society because we are the beginning of society. So even, um, <clears throat> even um, secretly, we're, we're looked upon as that, even though outwardly they may say, oh, it's another nigga, this, that, and the other, or look what he got on or because of his hood, or this, that, and the other. So being that the dress has diversified so much where you know, you may have a, um, you know, a little white boy from Kansas that sports a hoodie the same way, you know, a cat from Brooklyn to sport his, and you know, but it's about the way you conduct yourself, and I and I feel that we should always conduct ourselves on a higher level, and you know, when and some people think it's like putting on airs, like if they say if they're Caucasians around and stuff like that that, you know, and if you talk differently a little bit, they'll say, oh, oh, so you're going to talk that way in front of the white man and this, that, and right. the other. You're trying to be different and extra. I'm like, yeah, you motherfucking right. You know why? Because some of them, they look at us as pieces of shit. That's so right. my best thing is to show them because not to show them to impress them, but once they hear and see differently, then they would have respect and you can get it, whatever the case may be. If you need to get something out of them or you just need to pass by with the, um, you know, least uh, amount of resistance or whatever the case may be, you conduct yourself. And I think the problem is, and the reason why so many things go on nowadays is because, and I mean, simply put, there are too many niggas that don't know how to act. Yeah, yeah, we, we, we often give them exactly what they expect. So, so if they, if all they see is the depiction that they already thought they were going to get, you're never going to change their mindset about what black, who black people really are. Yeah. So when sure. we have the opportunity to show them different, you said before, there's a responsibility. Mm -hmm. We all have a responsibility to show different. And it yeah. may not, it may not ever change that person's overall perspective of black people. It may not, but it'll at least show them that there are some that can have a conversation and can conduct themselves differently. And eventually maybe that'll become the majority in their mindset or at least in their circle. Right. And, and the help, the help is in the aspect of when you do it, also understand that you're doing it for yourself. You're not doing it for somebody else to impress them or right. whatever the case may be, because when you, when you do it for yourself, you realize that, it is it is a form of self-fulfillment yeah you know 
I, I know I know who I am and I become more of myself when I can reflect upon whatever slavery, all these other things and not have to place that upon a person just because they're Caucasian. That's right. You know, um, and and treat them equally. And I think that the human factor um, pervades all of the all of the past history and stuff like that because i mean i had a conversation with somebody about um about georgia you know which is you know one of your good old boy states <laughs> and, um, you know what i'm saying and you know and and that whole concept as hard it is as hard as it is for people to realize is is fading that whole concept is fading. You know why? Because those good old boys, sons and daughters, sons and daughters, hip hop fiends. That's right. And 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 to me, that's one of the greatest contributions to the hip hop culture, or or the hip hop culture's greatest contribution to society is in the fact that it changed the mindset. I think that um, the, the hip hop culture is, even though, you know, they, they elect and they choose all these things anyway, but I think that that is responsible for the election of um, Obama. Yeah. yeah. Because, I, I, because the, the spiritual atmosphere of the world had changed with the, um, the advent of the hip hop culture and its growth. I, I think you, you, well, I know you did. You, you touched on some things that I've saw a couple other podcasts talked about is, you know, from, from the, from the, or the late eighties up until the mid two thousands, um, white, white, white males and females from the age of 12 to 22 was the biggest contributors to anything urban music related, whether it was buying CDs or buying apparel um based on urban music so so the 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 ultimate plan was if you if you censor that kind of music which we know has happened to where they they no longer can purchase those kind of cds you created another avenue in social media and and and, and, and the internet in creating people like boosie badass and some of these other rappers who's making millions never even re really being artists, as you say. They're not going in the studios and producing albums. Mm -hmm. They're just doing their stuff on social media and they're making millions. And white America is the are, are the ones that are viewing this content more than anybody else yeah. in the world. So what they thought they were doing by removing urban music from that, from that, that, that plane, they've actually created a whole new avenue of money and interest. Yeah. So white America logging on now and getting the same information without having to buy CDs now. <laughs> yeah. You know. Absolutely. Uh before we let you go, Jazz, um, you've been active on Instagram the last, you know, couple years. Um, you got the Kings County merchandise on. Let the people know what you're doing on Instagram. Let the people know where to find your merchandise and what to look out for for you coming in the future. Um, yeah, so, you know, we put excerpts of a few different things on, on IG, 
uh, just to let people know uh, what's going on with me. And, um, you know, uh, I have the uh, Jazz Old Chronicles that, um, you know, I elaborate on a couple of past incidents and, you know, just some, some words to the wise, you know, on how to conduct you, you, you know, conduct yourself under certain circumstances as, as music artists. Um, but uh, yeah, so we got the imovedifferent.com where you can get your imovedifferent uh, apparel. Also uh, the Kings County, which is going to be available soon on uh, kingscountymediagroup.com. And it's uh, K-I-N-G-Z. K-O-U-N-T-Y mediagroup.com. Um, you know, you can purchase, you know, one of these spanking spiffy ass <laughs> caps I got on right now, you know, and um, you know, some other apparel, you know, seasonal always, of course. Um, uh, that will be available shortly uh, to be announced. And um always the music. Um can look forward to a project. I have a project that I'm working on. Um, and this is the first time I'm publicizing it. And the name of the album is going to be called Jonathan Burks. That's my one of my legal false names. You say false name because you know your first, middle, and last is your actual name. So any right. anything besides that is your pseudoname. So yeah, so the um the LP named Jonathan Burks. And that's what I'm gonna deliver to you, Jonathan Burks. A um, couple other things going on. Oh, um, I have a seven um, volume book series that I'm starting. Um, I'm finishing the first volume and it's called Universes. It's a double entendre because universes and also uni is one and verse. Um, which uh, explains the one of the main topics of the volumes. It highlights um, landmark verses that sort of um, impacted the um, the rhyme game, you know, as far as the hip hop history. Um, so the first one is going to be um, for nigga what nigga who, and what happens in that. Um, there's a, a backstory that leads to me actually going to the studio to perform it. Um, some of the players involved, I elaborate on. Um, I also explain um, different aspects of um, poetic license, you know, uh, automatopoeia, um, simile, metaphor, so on and so forth, hyperbole, and give the mean, the definitions, give an example. And then later on in the in the volume, uh, what I do is I um, I text the the actual verse, and when an example of one of these poetic license uh, shows up, I highlight it and explain what it means, the double meaning, so on and so forth. Um, I think that it's um, I sort of targeted it for um, you know universities you know, because uh, hip hop history is becoming more prevalent as a curriculum in these schools. Um, and every and they, they wanna know, it's a hot item. And that's not the only reason. One of my personal reasons for doing these, these books is because 
um, of what we elaborated on earlier, where they think, um, you know, they think we come up with this shit by accident, or you know, we start playing some bongos and shit and get a, a spirit in us. You know, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know, we do this shit on purpose. You know, right. if I say some, I say some smart Alex shit, or you know, some real snappy shit. I said that shit on purpose. It's by design, and that book is in defense of every um, lyricist, you know, that ever spoke anything that has something with any texture to say. And it also elaborates on the, um, the fact that, you know, some of the main keys, the ingredients to creative writing, and also to, to note, um, there's a section that displays um, that even document writing, you know, like grant writing and business plans, that is also in the category of creative writing because it does have to contain a certain level of flair, which flair is a personal aspect. Personal is creative. So um, it's just, it's so, I think it's very educational. Um, I've been, I've been uh, occupied with a lot of other things. It's hard, you know, for me to give the deserved attention lately. Um, to complete the first volume, but um, this is sort of a wake-up call. You know, that's how that's how we receive communication sometimes from our own mouths and yeah. so on and so forth. So it's definitely a wake-up call. That's right. Hey, man, we're gonna be looking out for that, man. Uh, again, man, we appreciate you so much for for doing this episode. Um, means the world to us. Um, but again, we we appreciate you as far as hip hop culture all together um and and the things that the groundbreaking moves that you've made and the things that you've done and the respect that you've kept by doing that uh, you said earlier how the respect is the most important thing um and the respect not just from the fans the respect that you get from other artists your, your peers you, the other artists you know they look at you that way and you know that's monumental and we appreciate you for coming on bro thank you so much yeah, man, and, and and also thank you for um, thank you for when he asked you what you up to, not saying I'm in the studio <laughs> because we joke all the time. So our, our first, yeah, our, our first guest we wanted to bring on was Frankie Smith, a double Dutch bus, but he was still in the studio. He was in the studio working on a new album, so we couldn't we could get Frankie. Right? <laughs> but we joke all the time about every time you go get one of these these artists that's been in the industry for a long time, they're always in the studio. Yeah. But we never hear anything new. <laughs> yeah. Yo, yo, I'm in the studio, man. Okay. <laughs> that's the train of thought that I'll try to get my colleagues out of. It's like, yo, if you're doing something, keep doing it. You right. know, it's not it's a whole the business model, the whole setup is different now. You know what I'm saying? You're an entrepreneur now. So back then, you know, we had the management team, we had the record label, and the record labels were actual labels that had everything in-house. The only thing that was outside was the actual distributor and manufacturer of the CDs, vinyl, and further back cassettes. And so you know, it's, it's different now. Like we used to be able to sit back like, yo, all I got to do is go in the studio and record, finish that, um, go on the road, do radio, you know, oh, it's such hard work. That was all we had to do. You know what I'm saying? 
and get on stage, you know, <coughs> and um, but now it's a whole different deal. And, you know, I urge these cats to get up because if not, you know, I, I shit is going to die. That's right. I, you know, it's going to die. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, we thank everybody for tuning in. Um, make sure y'all go find Jazz. I'll put the links in the description on where to find that, um, the links he was talking about. But we love y'all. Peace.